welcome today. And I especially want to welcome home all our missionaries who have been um, on the other side of the globe, whether it was Taiwan or Myanmar. I think, I think uh, for the most part, everybody is officially home, and we're glad you're back. We really are glad you're back. We're proud of you and so grateful for the stories that we continue to hear um, that God has done and will continue to do through what you did over the last couple of weeks. Um, just really, really, really cool stuff, but we're glad you're back. We're glad you're back. I want to welcome everybody to week two of a talk series called Resist. Resist. And the reason we called it Resist is because we're trying to be honest that we often resist the God we say we trust. We do. I mean, we teach that he is trustworthy in everything. There is no moment that he cannot be trusted to the fullest. And yet we're admitting our struggle that at times it is tough for us to follow and instead we resist. And so we're taking three weeks, and this is the second week, where each week we're looking at a different individual whose life intersects with Jesus just days before the, the crucifixion. And each of these stories really does help us understand more of what's behind this tendency for us to resist. If you got your Bibles today, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of John, all right? But here's, here's where I want to start today. I want to start with this question. Have you ever tried to bargain with God? Don't lie, you're in church. Like, sure you have. Most all of us have. We, we have attempted to bargain with God. Now, when, when we were young, maybe I won't include you, when I was young, right? That was about girls and curfew, right? It's like I'm late getting home. I know I'm exceeding the speed limit. God, please just don't let me get a ticket, right? It's like, come on, help me out. And you're, you're, you're bargaining with God. The, the older you get, sometimes those issues change and they become things like health, especially when it's the health of somebody that you love and you find yourself trying to bargain with God, trying to get God in on your thing, in on your benefit, in on our end. So it goes like this, God, if you will, I will. God, if you will do whatever this is that, that I really want you to do, then I will pray more. I will, I will get more serious about, you know, being connected to your church. I will give more. I will, I will. God, if you will, I will. What do I need to do to get God to do what I want him to do? Y'all know what I'm talking about? Or maybe for some of us, that's kind of a thing in the past. And since God didn't, then you kind of said, forget it, God. God didn't behave the way you thought he should behave. God, this is what I need you to do. And because you did not perform at what I believe it means for you to be God, then, then I'm, I'm done here. Interesting enough, that's the issue for today's character. 
when he couldn't get Jesus to do what he wanted, he would eventually walk away. He's a pretender. We know him as a traitor. He's a what's-in-it-for-me individual, and there's a little bit of him in all of us. His name is Judas Iscariot. You're like, oh, no, 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 no. There ain't no Judas in me. Just hold on. Judas Iscariot. I want you to understand that for Judas, Jesus was always a means to an end. In particularly, the end that Judas wanted. But in fact, when you really back up and you look at all the disciples who followed Jesus, I'm saying it really was that way for all of them. Let me prove it to you. Perhaps you are familiar with a story in the Bible that was often titled The Rich Young Ruler, right? Now, ruler's actually not in the story. That's kind of an English thing that we have just kind of given it the title, but it is definitely a, a rich man who comes to Jesus because the man says, Jesus, what do I have to do to have eternal life? What do I need to do? And Jesus says, well, you, you, you want to live, then, then you got to obey God. You got to keep the commandments, right? It's don't murder, right? Don't steal, don't commit adultery. I mean, he, he rolls through them. And the man's response is, well, done it. Now, he had not kept them all, and his eventual response would prove that. But Jesus plays along in the moment, and Jesus is like, okay, if you've kept them all, then here's what you need to do. You need to sell what you have and give the money to the poor and follow me. See, Jesus knew he hadn't kept them all. That whole thing about no other gods before me. And the Bible says that the man with sadness walked away because he had wealth. And after that encounter, Jesus has a conversation with those disciples and he says, Guys, do you understand how tough it can be for rich people to follow me because they think they have a lot to lose. And the disciples look at each other and guess who speaks up? Yeah, Peter's always the one who speaks up and everybody I'm sure kind of gives him a glare but the truth is he actually asked the question that everybody else really wanted to know. Matthew chapter 19 verse 27, Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you Jesus and then here comes the question, what then will there be for us What's in it for us, Jesus? Do you understand what we've given up? Do you understand that, that, that we have, we've chosen to follow you, what we've done? I, I mean, Jesus, come on, I, I've given you my, my here I am, I, I've given you my Sunday mornings. I, I've, I, I'm, I'm, I'm giving, right? I, I, I've changed my language. I, I, I got out of that relationship. Do you, do you see what I've done, what's in it for me? And Jesus was a means 
to their end. Now, let me frame it for you this way. I think Judas had a very Old Testament expectation about who the Messiah would be. Now, that's understandable because what did he have? The Old Testament. And so what the prophets had written about who the Messiah would, would, would be, that, that's, what Jesus ha- or that's what Judas has in his mind. And so he's expecting a Messiah who, who will be very military, very political, very throw off the Roman rule, and let's return Israel to the golden days of Solomon. And when Jesus, or when Judas looked at Jesus, he could recognize some of those characteristics that, that, that the Bible, that's what he had, the Old Testament would have said, this is who the Messiah is going to be. The only problem is, Jesus didn't hate Rome. It's like, you should hate Rome. That's a part of why you're here. You're here to overthrow Rome, to get us out from under this control, but Jesus doesn't hate the Romans. Secondly, Jesus seems to be always in a battle. It's an ongoing battle with the Jewish religious leaders. And it's like, come on, Jesus, if we're going to get a movement going here, if we're really going to establish some momentum, we really shouldn't be fighting among ourselves. This thing should be coming together. And Jesus just kept on fighting with the religious leaders. And then there was the fact that Jesus wouldn't save enough money. Because it's like every time they got some, he give it away. He's helping somebody else. It's like, how are we going to build resources if we just keep giving away what we've got? And then, then came the final straw, which was actually an act of generosity. The event took place about a mile and a half outside the city of Jerusalem, just to the east, let's call it a suburb, called Bethany. It was a little village, a little village, and here's what happens, Matthew chapter 26, verse 6, look. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now, first thought, that's weird, right? I mean, really, if you're in the room, it's like, I think that's kind of weird. What's going on here? Well, they're around the table. They're reclining because they didn't sit in chairs around a dinner table. They would recline around a dinner table, and the meal would take quite a while, and they're visiting, they're talking, and in comes this lady with this bottle of perfume. Now, typically, bottles like that would have been sealed to keep, you know, prevent evaporation, for example. And so what would often have to happen is you would break the neck of the bottle enough for the perfume to be able to flow. She breaks the neck of that bottle probably and begins to pour that perfume over Jesus' hair. And the aroma fills the room. And I'm telling you, it's likely it filled the street. Now, John, who is also one of Jesus' followers, gives us a bit more detail about this encounter 
when he says that the bottle of perfume was worth a year's wages. Now, y'all, come on. A year's wages. Now, let's say if the average median income in the United States is somewhere around $50,000. That's usually where it is, give or take a little bit. So let's say that the average median income in the, in the United States is $50,000, then this bottle of perfume is worth $50,000. Y'all all right? Okay, let's say 25. Okay, let's just go 25. I mean, 50 is like a, let, let's go 25. Or maybe even 10, right? Anybody in the house where 10,000 still not a lot of money, right? Or, or how about even five? Like, if you owned a bottle of perfume worth $5,000 and you saw somebody pour it over somebody's head, I bet you there would be some part of you saying, Oh, if we could have just divided that up and then we sold each ounce and then how much, right? You understand the shock in the room? If whatever you make in a year was in this bottle of perfume. Verse 8. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. <laughs> I mean, they're really mad. They're really mad. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and money given to the poor. Now, y'all come on, let's give, them the, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. You know what I'm saying? Let's, let's just assume that they're not being holier than now and they're not all thinking we could have pocketed how much of that 50000 Let's say that they've actually been hanging around Jesus long enough that, that they're starting to buy into. You know, sometimes that it, it should be used to, to do things like help the poor. Now, Jesus knows what's happening because Jesus always knows what's happening. Jesus answers questions before questions even get asked. And when Jesus gives answers, they are always at the heart level behind the words. Verse, six, or verse 10. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. First of all, he's like, it's hers. It ain't none of your business. Second, this is beautiful. Because she's honoring me. And you see, I think the whole issue really is here. Like us, they still don't really understand who they're dealing with here. Because, I mean, a bottle of perfume worth a year's wages that you pour over somebody's head, who's worth that? They don't know who they're dealing with here. And isn't it true that, I mean, we kind of have those same issues. This last week when all our folks were, you know, other parts of the world and I'm texting back and forth a little bit and there was one 
one um, moment when I'm texting with somebody who was actually in a worship time. They were in a church, and um, they're texting me about how fantastic it is, which I knew it was because I've actually been there before, and and just a, a great you know, experience of being there, and I'm saying to them, hey, start writing down everything that you can see that, that we can learn from. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if there are some things that they're doing that we can do better, start writing that stuff down. And so as the texts are flying back and forth, it's like, well, they, they do this, but our folks really do that just as well, I think. And they do this, and, 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 and I, we do that too. And, and the songs, it's like, well, we, we sing them. We just sang them like a year ago or something. I mean, the songs they're singing, it's not even like the newest songs. And, and I'm like, okay, then what's the deal? And the word that came back was participation. When these people worship, they're all in. And I started thinking, it's like, when I go to Togo, it's the same way. It's like, they're all in, man. Nobody's standing around with their hands in their pockets. And when I've been with the underground church in China, believe me, it's how they are too. I mean, it's every voice that's just declaring praise And I got to thinking, is it only in America that we can convince ourselves that it's okay to gather together? Is it okay to gather together? Which means, is it okay to gather with the main question being, what do I need here? What do do I need here? Because honestly, Jeff, I I mean, God loves me. I I don't need to sing. And you know what? You're right. You're right. You don't, you, it is not necessary that you sing that God loves you. But can I tell you, when you realize who he is and how you are so loved, you will shout his praise. But instead, we have a way of treating worship as a means to an end It's just our end. What do I need from this? Ouch. I would submit to you that we do the same thing with prayer. Because come on, think about prayer. Who are we talking to? Who are we talking to? God. A privilege to approach The God who spoke all of this into existence, then the God who would give his life for us. We we are speaking to him, and yet I'm saying to you, isn't it true that lots of times our prayer life is kind of this hit and miss thing, and at best, it is sometimes a, a routine of how we start the day until, until... There is this need that appears in our life that is bigger than what we know we can handle. And and so suddenly there is a sickness that I need him to do something about. That There is a loss of a job that I need him to, to fix. There is something that I want that I don't currently have the means to get. And I'm saying, oh, 
when we actually realize who he is and how we are loved, we will want to be connected to him at all moments, not just treating prayer as a means to an end to get what I want. It's not a tool to get what I want. It's an opportunity to connect with the most wonderful. You see what I'm saying? There's a little bit of them in us that even when we are gathered to focus on who he is, sometimes I'm not sure we understand. They didn't. Verse 11, Jesus says, The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. And then he says something crazy disturbing to them. Verse 12, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Whoa, 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 whoa. Burial? What do you mean burial? Jesus Messiah's don't die. Do you know how long we've been waiting on you? Do you know how long we've been waiting for you to show up? But honestly, what's the real issue behind all this? Jesus, if you die, what will happen to us? And then Jesus says something amazing. Absolutely amazing. This is the kind of stuff in the Bible that I think we just roll past at times. But I'm telling you, it is the most miraculous stuff to me. So if you have officially got to the point that you typically tune out, I'm saying tune back in. Give me a few minutes. I I want you to hear this next verse. All right? This is the stuff for all of you that sit in college classrooms and hear professors tell you that the Bible is just a book. There's nothing really to this. What we're about to read is the kind of stuff that ought to make you take the New Testament really really serious verse 13 Jesus said truly I tell you wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world what she has done will also be told in memory of her and they're like what Jesus what are you talking about we're here in Bethany. Ain't nothing big happening in Bethany. What's there like 25 of us in this room, right? I'm making that up. I don't know how many were actually in the room, but I, it, it was just at a house, right? Seriously, Jesus, what are, you, what are you saying? And Jesus is saying, I know where we are, and I know how many of us there are, and I'm telling you that people all over the world are going to hear about this. How many of you have heard this story before today? How many of you have heard this story after today? Right. I'm just trying to get everybody some participation, all right? Everybody's in. I'm just kidding. Jesus said, you're going to remember her, and you're going to remember what she did. And this little thing that you think so crazy today, the whole world is going to know this story. 
Come on, think about all the languages. Think about all the peoples. Think about, and he says, everywhere the good news is told, you're going to hear this story. I'm saying Jesus didn't just predict things like he would die and rise. He also predicted incredible moments like this where nobody else saw the significance except they thought it was absolute foolishness. And Jesus is like, oh, no, this is so big, it's going to be told forever and ever and ever. I'm telling you, you should take Jesus serious. Nobody else can do that stuff. Nobody else can do that stuff. John gives us more detail about what's going on in the room because he said it was actually Judas who stirred up this whole situation. It was Judas who actually stirred the pot and go, what are we doing taking this kind of money and pouring it over somebody's head? John also tells us that Judas is the treasurer and John also calls him a thief and says there are times that Judas was taken from the, from the pot. He, he was taken from the bag, man. He, he, was, he was taking money. And so for Judas, it's like he's had enough. He's done. This is not moving where it should move. Maybe I need to think about another direction. I'm not sure I can trust Jesus to do what needs to be done because it's clear to me that this is what Jesus needs to do here and he ain't acting like I'm thinking he needs to act. And so I'm showing you that the very next verse In Matthew chapter 26, verse 14, says this. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? He ain't doing what he's supposed to do. Jesus isn't being the Messiah that a Messiah is supposed to be. And so you know what? If he's not going to operate like I need him to operate, then I'm going to take matters into my hands. How far away did I tell you? It's only about a mile and a half. And so this is just the last straw. Was it just that Judas is impatient? I mean, is he thinking if I stir this up, then then Jesus will have to start acting like the Messiah that he's supposed to be? Is, Is he just trying to force Jesus' hand? I don't know. Here's the thing I do know. Judas is acting in such a way that he believes prophets Judas. Because whatever comes for this is better for Judas because he's not getting what he wants. What was it that up to this point kept the religious leaders like Caiaphas that we studied last week, what kept them from arresting Jesus? Crowds. Crowds. There were too many people following. Well, what does Judas bring to the table now? Judas has the ability to get Jesus away from the crowds. And that's worth something. Verse 15, the end says, so they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver.
I know it's not silver, so don't criticize me. I started to bring some silver dollars. First of all, I don't own 30 of them. But silver dollars, honestly, would be too big for what the silver pieces that Judas would have received in that day. So 30 silver dollars would be too big, just to put it in perspective, for those of you who, who remember when there were actually silver dollars, all right? So I'm saying 10, 10, 10. Judas, Judas had been fishing with Jesus. Right? Judas probably ate a meal, at least one, every day with Jesus. Judas saw the miracles. He saw it with his own eyes. And Judas gets so fed up with not being able to do what he wants Jesus to do. That Judas traded his relationship with Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, this ain't silver, and it ain't gold, and it's not really worth anything. It's just representing some coins here. But I hope it still kind of puts it in perspective for you. He traded his relationship with Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It's like, really? For Jesus? It is, a lot of people believe that was a common price in that day for a slave. But then... But then I did some thinking this week. Do you know? Do you know some of the things that I've been tempted to trade my relationship with Jesus for? Yeah, you do you've been tempted to trade it to. Some things that you were tempted to go after instead of believing him, of following him, of obeying him. And it's because in the moment, it felt like the right thing to do because of what I could get out of this. Because of what you could get from this. Verse 16. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. If we were watching a movie, this would be where the music changed. It's about to get serious. It's time for the Passover. 
So on Thursday, Jesus sends the disciples into the city of Jerusalem. This is going to be the last Passover that they celebrate together. They just don't know that yet. As the story unfolds, they gather in that upper room. Perhaps you've read the story, and as they're eating together and they're talking together, Jesus again shocks the room. He takes off his teacher's robe. It was a, it was a, a symbol of authority. And Jesus starts washing feet, which is again what servants do. Jesus, what are you doing? This is not how messiahs act. This is not how world leaders act. You're supposed to move with authority, not, not acting like a servant. Jesus, what are you doing? And Jesus says, this is what I want you to do for the rest of your life. Even when you find yourself to be the most powerful person in the room, I want you to leverage your power for everybody else in the room. When you get to thinking that you're a big deal, start washing feet for the rest of your life. Wash feet. And Peter, shocker, speaks. He's like, Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus is like, shut up and sit down, Peter. I am. That's obviously my paraphrase. I'm not sure if shut up is in the Greek or not, but it was something like that. And this was so disturbing to them again. Somebody, somebody says, let's go to the garden and pray. And when that happens, Judas knows this is the perfect time because the garden is an isolated place. He can deliver Jesus to Caiaphas. But the question is, how do I get out of this room? How how do I get this done? And as Judas is trying to figure it out, Jesus again shocks him. Now we're in John chapter 13, verse 21. Here's what it says. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me me and Judas is like oh no how did I ever think I was going to pull this off right because he answers people's questions before they even ask the question right and we're dealing with the guy who raised Lazarus from the dead how did I ever think that I was really going to pull this deal off and Peter's still carrying around that stupid sword like he's going to actually use it on somebody this is probably going to be the moment Judas expects Jesus is about to give him up. And in verse 27, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. That'll mess you up. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. In other words, Judas, I know what you're doing. And I'm not going to stop you. In fact, I got you back. Verse 28 tells us that no one at the meal understood why Jesus said that to him, right? They're they're assuming he's off on an errand or something. And then in verse 31, look what Jesus says. When he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. What in the world does that mean? It means God's greatness is being unfolded here. And just so you remember, God's hand is cannot be forced, and his will cannot be stopped. God is right 
on track. Judas, I believe, thinks that Jesus is going to be taken to Caiaphas. And Caiaphas is going to do what he always would do to people. He was going to ask him some questions. Maybe they're going to punish Jesus, right? Maybe they're going to rough him up a little bit. They're probably going to arrest him for a little bit. Maybe in a worst-case scenario, they're going to exile him, right? And, Caiaphas, and Judas is thinking, I, I've got my silver, and you know what? Jesus is going to figure this thing out because he's Jesus. I'm not even sure they're going to be able to hold him. I've seen the crowds before try to touch him, and sometimes Jesus wouldn't let it happen. I'm not even sure they'll know what to do. And then... Judas finds out that Caiaphas goes to Pilate. And when he hears that Caiaphas goes to Pilate, everything changes. Because the only reason Caiaphas would go to Pilate is if he wanted death. See, Caiaphas could do everything else he wanted to do, but it took, it took Roman rule in order for an execution to happen. The Jews were not given the authority to do such. And, and, and now, here's Pilate. He's involved. Why else would Caiaphas go? Jesus isn't even arrested. Judas realizes what he's done. Back to Matthew chapter 27, verse 3. I'm sorry to jump back and forth, but it's like it's the only way I can show you the whole story. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He did what? He brought it back. Why? Because what was of such extraordinary value in one minute had no value in the next. What was worth trading Jesus in one minute became shame in the next. What he sacrificed a relationship with Jesus for in one minute was something he wished he had never done. And oh my goodness, some of us may be living right there because I'm telling you, some of our greatest regrets are over things we tried to hold on to, we tried to preserve we resisted God in order to prop up our little gods, and those aren't even a part of our life anymore. Judas' greatest regret was an attempt to force God's hand. Verse 4, I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. Judas, that's on you. Verse 5, this is the part of the story you probably know. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then he went away and hanged himself. Judas gained Thirty pieces of silver world and lost his soul. He gained 
of 30 pieces of silver world. Something that could be held in his hand. And he lost his soul. Y'all, this is the stuff that drives me. This is the stuff that keeps me awake at night. This is the stuff that fires me up and makes me yell at you when we talk. When I want to go, what are we doing? What are you doing? Why are you hurting yourself? Why are you holding on to something that is actually undermining your happiness? Why would you go after that? Too many people reject Jesus to preserve something that they lose anyway. They hold on to something that ends up hurting themselves and ends up hurting the people around them. Judas traded for something that immediately began to lose its value and significance. And so do we. So here's where I leave you today. I want you to realize when we attempt to barter with God, we are responsible for the outcome. Now, barter is a word that we don't use a whole lot. Our whole society used to be about barter, right? What, what, what is a barter? It's like each of us is going to bring something to the table, right? You got this, and I'm bringing this, and we're going we're gonna to barter. We're, you do this, and I'll do this. And I'm saying when you start to do something with, when you start to do that with God, and you're bringing something, do you understand who's responsible? You are. Judas, that's on you. And apparently, you just need to know, God will not get in the way of you having your way. Because he honors your freedom. And he apparently will not interfere, even if it means undermining your own success and happiness. That should scare you. Not because God is scary, but because we are scary, we have the capability to undermine our own happiness. Bartering, though, seems so much easier because it feels like it means I don't have to surrender, right? It's like, I, I'm not writing a blank check to God. I'm, I'm going to give him some, but I'm bringing something to the table. Bartering seems so much better. Resisting seems easier than just saying, God, have your way. But here's the promise that you need on this other side. The promise is when we surrender to God, he takes responsibility for the outcome. And I'm telling you, that's what you want. When you say, God... This is a struggle for me, but I don't want to hold on anymore. Yes, this is appealing to me, but it's not worth anything compared to you. This is not worth, this is not, worth not having the peace that comes from being right with you. This is, this is not right. This is not worth the integrity of my heart. It's not worth it. And so I surrender it. And I'm telling you the safest place, the most secure place you can ever be is fully given up in the hands of your God. 
God, your will, not mine. It's like, Jeff, come on, man. That is so hard because it is so risky. And I'm saying, are you kidding me? Which is more risky? For you to pull it off or for God to pull it off? Is it more risky to put everything in your responsibility or put it in God's responsibility? Whatever you have placed or replaced God with in your life is far more risky than trust in him. So my question is, what do you need to trust him with? What do you need to let go of? What are you hanging on to? What is it that matters more to you? What is it that you've been attempting to God, to make God do that that you think needs to be done and instead to go, okay, God, you know what? This relationship, it's yours. What do you want me to do with it? God, my future, it's yours. What do you want to do with it? My my major, my GPA, my friendships, my attitude, my forgiveness, whatever it is right now that you're holding on to, going, I'd rather barter. No. The safest, most secure, most purpose-filled place you can be is fully surrendered to him. Resisting sets you up for much greater loss. Because resistance ultimately leads to death. Surrender leads to resurrection. God, I think about what Judas held in his hands that day. And we really do find ourselves at moments being angered because Jesus would, or Judas would trade. He would trade a relationship for a little bag of money. But God, this story... God, it really does teach us. It really does show us, God, when, when we're willing, it really does shine the light on how many of us have a way of operating where for too long, God, we've been wanting to hold on to things instead of you and then manipulate you to do what we need you to do. God, I'm asking today, that you would change how we see who you are. God, we end up trying to protect stuff, to prop stuff up that's never going to last, and instead we could know you, our protector, our defender, you, our God, who loves us enough that you would prove it at a cross. God, today, across this room, God, folks who are hearing my voice, I'm asking that as you show us the stuff that needs to be released today, you would give us courage to begin to release. And instead of wrestling with you, we could rest in you. 
knowing that you love us, knowing that you got this. God, as you speak in these moments, give us courage to follow. God, I pray for those who may have be here today who have never, ever entrusted their life to you. God, today, help us to follow. It's in the name of Jesus that I'm praying.